Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the High Point 101 podcast, where we will be getting an in-depth understanding of what it looks like to be a participating member in the body of Christ here at High Point Church. I'm Jason Horton, the pastoral intern at High Point, and in this episode, Aaron Hesse, the director of Connections and Small Groups, and Nick Gibson, the lead pastor, will be discussing the Connect, Grow, Serve ministry model here at High Point Church. Thanks so much for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to part one Connect Grow Serve podcast for the High Point Church membership class. I'm here with Nick Gibson, senior pastor. Hello everyone. And all that we're going to be talking about today is our ministry model, Connect Grow Serve. That's we have it plastered all over the church in various places in different documents, and we talk about it at Explore. Um, I know that we mention it in our announcements, so we're going to take a dive into why we have that as our ministry model. So Nick, you brought the Connect, Grow, Serve model to High Point, right? Yeah, kind of. Okay. How did that? Yeah, I I invented that language, but I mean, it's not, it's not incredibly creative, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe some could look at it and think it's creative. I mean, that's, we chose three words and yeah, so uh, I created it um, working while I was working for another church while we were trying to really simplify our ministry models because sometimes when churches grow and you're just kind of like, well, we're just trying to serve Jesus and we want people to be ministered to and we want to do good in the community and we want to affect things around the world and we want to have great music and you get just things kind of get, you just keep adding and adding and adding and you get a big, just a big casserole mm-hmm. of things going on. It can be really confusing. And um, so uh, churches as they get larger tend to try to simplify and focus their model of doing ministry to make sure they're doing exactly what they've purposed to do mm-hmm. and what God told them to do. So when you look at what Christian discipleship looks like and you summarize it, as simple as it can be, but not simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, in my judgment, Connect Grow Serve is a good way to lay out what that means. But it's it is a little bit more complicated than that because for each of those three, there's two subpoints. Sure. So under Connect, there's connecting with God and connecting with others. Mm-hmm. Under Grow, there is understanding the gospel and knowing the Bible. Mm-hmm. And under Serve, there is serving the city and reaching the world. Mm-hmm. And so it really, in some ways, it's six things, but it falls under those three headings that we that there is a relational component to everything everything humans do because we are that kind of creature mm-hmm. that there is a developmental component that we we don't want to stay the way we are we need to change by growing mm-hmm. and that we are here to be stewards right we own nothing but we're in charge of everything in our life god has given us these gifts and we're to use them for his purposes and those purposes when we look at them is our stu- some form of service mm-hmm towards others. For some, it's like leadership that gets you lots of notoriety that makes you, you know, people think you're important and all that kind of thing, but you're really using your, whatever is in your hands for the good of others and for the purposes of God. And Mm -hmm. if you're cleaning desks or something, it may not feel exciting or important, but you are using everything God has put into your hands to serve others and to serve God's purposes. Mm -hmm. And so in essence, everything has to have this human life is about serving, right? Yeah. And so, um, so it's organized around those three things that there's a relational component, there is a developmental component, and there is a component of actional loving of lifestyle Christianity of doing the actual stuff, helping other people and flourish, causing people to flourish together. Yeah. I think it's important to, I guess, to take a step back first here for a minute and 
lay out what our mission statement is as a church so that we exist to make disciples of Jesus through gospel connection, growth, and service. And so why is it that – so we've got the Great Commission that was given by Jesus to go out and make disciple, disciples and baptize them. And so why is it that we – how is it that we see from the way that Jesus did mis- um, his ministry that we see connection and growth and service being played out in how he wants to then commission us as disciples. Yeah. You've heard this presentation of times that I know you intentionally set me up with how you quoted the, the, um, the great commission, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, um, all heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And then the verse you left out that all churches leave out and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not a throwaway. If you go through the old Testament and you say, God says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. In almost every context in the Old Testament where God says, you need to love me, directly within that context, he says, the way you do that is by obeying. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, because talk is cheap, right? And so, when Jesus says, teach everybody who comes to become a disciple, and you baptize in my name, then you need to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Mm-hmm. So that's that's when we say we, we want to make disciples of Jesus. We that's what we mean. Yeah, that they should be called to be disciples and be invited to believe. They should be baptized in His name and they should learn to obey everything He commanded. Mm-hmm. And none of that is left out. And that we do that through gospel centered, right? The content is the gospel of Christ, and we do it with by connecting, growing, and serving. Does that make sense? Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so let's then take some time diving into each of those three components. Like you mentioned, connect, grow, and so serve are each broken up into two sub points. And so let's talk about connect for a little bit, um, that we're supposed to connect with God and also connect with others. So um, two questions. Why why are those the ways in which we are supposed to focus our connecting? And then how is it that we do that at high point. So yeah, the first thing is, so what we're trying to help people do is we want to help people connect with God. We want to help people connect with others, mm-hmm. right? We want people to have a relationship with God and we want people to have deep and meaningful relationships with other disciples. So what those mean for us is um, evangelicals or um, people in our sort of revivalist tradition tend to use the language of having a relationship with God in a way other people and other, even other Christian sects don't. Mm-hmm. We mean it in the most generic sense possible that God presents himself in the Bible and in history, not as an idea, but as a person, right. a being and a person, a a very different person, a wholly other kind of person than us, mm-hmm. but a person nonetheless. So when we come, when we believe in Christian faith, we're not, ju- we're not believing in a set of ideas. We're putting our trust in the promises of a person who mm-hmm. is God. Mm-hmm. And if if God is a person and we think of ourselves as persons, we think we're persons, right? Yeah. And if something happens between persons, right? What we were, the way we refer to that is we call that relating, mm-hmm. right? Two persons interact, that's relating. Mm-hmm. And so if two persons are relating, what do you have? By definition, you have a relationship, right? right. So when we say you, we want everybody to have a relationship with God, we're, we're not saying it's going to be just like you have with your spouse or your best friend or whatever. What we're saying is, is that God is a person and must be recognized not as just an idea, this isn't just a religion. It's not a set of rules or rituals. It's not just a means by which you get meaning in your life. Mm-hmm. It is first and foremost you coming into a relating 
dynamic with God who is a person and you're putting your trust in the person of God, not just in a set of ideas. Does right. that make sense? Yep. And everybody has to have that re- revelation, that realization, and accept that for themselves. Mm-hmm. I am coming into a relationship with God. Yeah. He's a person who is there, who's spoken and shown himself. He and I are relating through what he's spoken and shown through faith, and I'm going to put my trust in him. And that relationship is going to be the new definer of my life. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Which I think then sets a precedent for how we are to then connect with others, which is that second portion of connection. So. Right. Explain that a little bit as to like what what that connecting right. with others is supposed to look like at High Point or in any church. So, so scripture says that Jesus in his death and resurrection becomes the head of a body, mm-hmm. which is what he calls the church that is all believers in all time space, mm-hmm. right? And they become one physical body as united as our physical bodies with each other. Mm-hmm. All kinds of different parts, all kinds of different abilities, but functioning as one under the direction of the head. Mm-hmm. And the body of Christ is supposed to be like that. And so not only do we all function together to achieve what God has put us together to achieve on a mission, but we also nourish and care for and even share feeling with one another, right? It's like the, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, that when one part hurts, the whole body hurts with it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When you stub your toe, your whole body reacts. Right. And you feel kind of almost holistically, you feel the pain kind of regionally in your toe, but it affects your whole body. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? You know, if you feel it kind of all together. And what the Bible says is that's the way the body of Christ should be, that we should be so connected in love and devotion and relationship with each other. We refer to each other as brothers and sisters all through the New Testament. It's brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. That yeah. is, there's a familial connection. Scripture says that Jesus is like the older brother of a new family, mm-hmm. right? We're all brothers and sisters and heirs with him. All of these metaphors of our union with each other are meant to show us how we are tied together in a single identity. But then in addition to that, there's this concept in the New Testament called fellowship. Right. Which is not just like standing in a room with like styrofoam cups, drinking bad coffee under fluorescent lights, talking about things you're not interested in. Right. Although it may include that. It's not just. Yeah. yeah. It may sometimes include that. Yeah. But it it may sometimes be something like it's more like what um, J.R.R. Tolkien had in mind in like the Lord of the Rings. That fellowship was this this bond that was rooted in liberty. Everybody must choose it. Mm-hmm. But it, it is a bond that would not be broken for devotion to one another. Mm-hmm. And that it, it's that friendship the Bible calls the friendship that sticks closer than a brother. It's like it is a motivated unity in something even deeper than friendship in which the travails and difficulties and the path that you've chosen together, you will not stray from and you will carry on with one another until you reach your goal. Mm-hmm. And that concept, the concept of fellowship where we bear each other's burdens and care for those who are in need and spur one another on towards love and good deeds and all the things the Bible says we're supposed to do to one another for each other's good happens within that context of fellowship. Mm-hmm. And being connected with one another includes all of those concepts that we are we are ontologically connected to one another that is in our fundamental spiritual identity, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are one mm-hmm. in one body. And functionally, we're called to walk together in this thing called fellowship. Now, the sexy new word that we've used for the last 20 years for fellowship is community. Mm. I don't actually think it's as good a word, mm. but we ruined the word fellowship for a generation because it 
we did silly sterile things with it in many cases that younger people didn't like. And so they came up with a new word in like the seventies or eighties saying like, which I guess is like 40 years ago, but they were like, Oh, let's call it community. That'll be sexier. And we've been doing that for like 40 years. And I want to go back to fellowship because now I think we've made community sound dumb. Yeah, sure. And I think, well, whatever language we end up using, we recognize that like if, if you are a part of the broader body of Christ, that means that you are serving Jesus as your Lord and others who are also doing that, you are connected to each other. But the way that we structure that on a more local, smaller group scale is through the local church. And so what, even if the semantics are wrong or not as good as they could be and need to be changed, at least we know that that thing of connecting with each other needs to happen within the local church. That's why you can't just do church from home or um, just by yourself, which a lot of people make that argument. If I'm following Jesus, why can't I just connect with God and I have my relationship with him? There's it or has just have to- Christian friends at work right. or on campus or my neighborhood. Right. There's no, no, because there's a number of things that that one anotherness, that fellowship we're commanded to do. And in each case, it presumes and is formed to mean the local church. Yeah. And it, that includes right authority and right discipline, mm-hmm. for example. And so having elders and pastors over you in the Lord, people who the Bible says will give account for your souls. Like mm-hmm. there should be somebody in your life whose job it is to look after you spiritually, and they're going to have to give an answer to God with accountability for how they shepherd you. To you. Right. And so if you're going astray, like it's their job to be like, hey, hey whoa. What's going on there, sheep? You know, mm-hmm. and when you're like off by yourself, that's not the case. Even if you like go to like five different churches, right? But none of them are your church. Yeah. None of those elders are your spiritual authority and so on. That's the, that's the kind of thing that just, it doesn't fit with what the New Testament teaches. Being part of um, the body of Christ is supposed to mean. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Something that you just mentioned was that the authority that elders have or the um, the responsibility that elders and pastors have over a congregation to shepherd the rest of the people who are a part of the flock. So um, when I think of um, our that second part of our mi- our ministry model to grow, I think about how understanding the gospel and knowing the Bible, the two elements of growth come into play really strongly here when we think about what is it that is being taught? What is what is the purpose of having there be an authority coming in to teach the rest of a group something? So can you explain those two components? Yeah. So the gospel is a, the word that we use if that comes from a Greek word that means good news or good message. And so the euangelion, the good, the good angel, the, the word angel means messenger. The good message is specifically referring to the message that Christ has died for our sins and risen for our justification that uh, in Christ's death and resurrection, an opportunity for us to be reconciled to God and to receive a holistic salvation, which includes our, for us being forgiven and counted innocent, us receiving and being counted in the righteousness of Christ by being unified with Christ mystically in his saving of us for us to experience the regenerative miracle that takes out our heart of stone in in sin and gives us a new sensitivity of heart called a heart of flesh. That is a heart that wants to do what's good and right and what is in God's will. Um, That we are given the presence of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to function with us and empower us towards what God has sent us into to be free of the condemnation of sin and future judgment, to be promised, to be heirs of Christ, 
to what we call heaven, but also the full life of Christ and the approval of God and all these sorts of things that are kind of like part and parcel and built into salvation, Mm -hmm. um, that we become heirs of all those things. We receive all those things. And then we spend our life appropriating those things that Mm -hmm. Christ loved us first. And we respond to that in faith. And then we live out in joy and thankfulness, what Christ has done for us. Mm -hmm. That is the gospel right now. The two major perversions of that, that I don't know how, what percentage of Christians believe, much less the world. I would say probably the majority of people who profess to be Christians and maybe even a majority of Christians who go to church regularly believe that one of one of two perversions, either one, what we call moralism or legalism, that God will love me if I obey him mm-hmm. and God loves me in proportion to how much and how well I obey him. Mm-hmm. So I obey him then he loves me. So you see, God's love is responsive to our works rather than preceding our works. Mm -hmm. It gets the order of salvation backwards. And it assumes that our works create love rather than are the result of being loved. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's wrong. And what it what that does is it focuses you on yourself and it focuses you, makes you focus on your behavior. Mm-hmm. And then you get focused on other people and the behavior of other people. And you naturally get focused on the comparison between you and those other people. And you get focused either on uh, hating yourself because you're not living up to what you feel like you should in order to be loved by God or boasting or feeling a lot of pride that you are doing it and others should be as good as you. Mm-hmm. And so it poisons all of the psychology or the way you think and feel about your faith in Christ. And you're not really functioning by what the the Bible calls grace. Yeah. Right. The free gift of God to save and redeem you. And you're not operating in your life out of grace. That it's that free gift that carries you, helps you, empowers you, and brings you to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So moralism or legalism, and then you'll tend to get like rules, a lot of rules that aren't in scripture, a lot of very negative controlling attitude. There's all kinds of pathologies that come out of legalism and moralism. On the other side is what you might call libertinism or the therapeutic understanding of the gospel, which is if God is a good father and he loves me already, then he should make my life go well and keep giving me the good gifts that I want. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So that's like the, you know, God is your Santa Claus or God is the person who makes your life go. He's your like manager, your life consultant. He is doing what you want him to do. So it's God is in the position of being affirmative, accommodating to you. Mm -hmm. And so what what happens is, is that you could be a narcissist and expect God to accommodate that. Right. And, and so it, it creates a kind of attitude where God serves you. God doesn't have his own purposes that you serve. You serve, he serves your purposes. His vision of the world has to be your vision of the world. What he thinks is good, true, beautiful has to be what you think is good, true, beautiful, because you are making these demands on him saying, well, if God is good, this is what he would do. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it refuses to understand the sovereignty of God, that God rules over all the providence of God, that he determines what happens. Right. And the, and the judgment of God or like God seeing the world in a particular moral way, he won't change. It doesn't see our own depravity that what we want for ourselves is often what's worst for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't see ourselves as people who need fundamentally need to be reformed and transformed. We want God to accommodate to us when we need to be completely changed to be conformed to him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so when we have that kind of view, we might not be moralists, but we'll be worldlings. We'll use our freedom to sin mm-hmm. and we'll want God to be fine with it. And he'll want his even, even he'll want, we'll want God even to bless us for our sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and in some ways that that's just as disgusting as moralism. 
Yeah. Well, and I, as you were talking, it got me thinking about how our understanding of the gospel will affect how we connect with God and how we connect with others and the right way or the wrong way to do that. And, um, I like speaking from personal experience, I, and I, and from what I've heard of others, if, if, for example, you have a more moralistic understanding of the gospel and then therefore connect with God in that way and, and assume that you have to, um, it's like a earning system and how to stay well connected with him or to have his approval. That's how you often view other people that there's a comparison of like a way that I'm supposed to act so that I have gain approval or this person needs to act a certain way so that I approve of them. And it just, it messes both relationships up relationships up. Yeah. Yeah. If you think in turn, like Tim Keller has said that like human idolatry is like the things we worship that we treat as gods that aren't gods mm-hmm. you know, are power, control, affirmation, and comfort, mm-hmm. right? If you fall into moralism, how you will give yourself to power, control, and affirmation in particular are going to be profoundly affected and controlled by this sense of superiority or inferiority, right? Because remember, pride doesn't always make you feel better than everybody else. Pride is inordinate Mm self-focus. And if you don't like what you see in yourself, that inordinate self-focus can lead to self-loathing, hatred, self-contempt, and depression, Mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, that's all just part and parcel of of all of all of that. And so so in some ways moralism has the benefit of being a context in which we take the world ourselves and each other morally seriously. Mm-hmm. Right? But in the wrong way. Yeah. Yep. Right? Whereas libertinism or the therapeutic view of God and the world is one where we take we we look at God's generosity mm-hmm. and we we presume and we expect upon God's generosity, but we don't connect with God as a morally superior and intellectually and rationally superior being to where what he wants and what is good is just completely different than what we think. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so in both cases, we're not really, con- in one case, we're conforming ourselves to God's rules. In another way, we want God to conform to our desires. In neither case, are we really conforming ourselves to the attitude, the graciousness? We're not conforming ourselves to the gospel, mm-hmm. the, the actual good news. Right. And then we don't live out and retreat each other in, in accordance with the gospel, but in accordance with one of these two fallacies. And sometimes both. There are some people who are liber- who are super libertine and also legalists just in different ways. Yeah. And so by living by helping people understand the gospel, we want to free them from the slavery of libertinism and the narcissism and self-centeredness and rejection of God and the idolatry that goes along with that. And also the idolatry and hatred of God and frustration and self-loathing that comes from moralism. Mm-hmm. And both of these are normal. And you can see this, for example, in Jesus' parable of the the prodigal son or the lost son, right? There's two sons. One goes off and spends all the money with prostitutes. The other, when that person comes home and, and the father forgives him and loves him and throws a party about his redemption, the older brother is so angry. Mm-hmm. And when the father comes out to say, hey, why don't you come into the party? Like, if this is for a party for you as much as anybody. And he's like... He makes all these accusations like your son came home and you've never given me even a goat to slaughter. And like, I've slaved for you all these years. And like, he's very ungrateful. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very clear he's been obeying the rules so that he could get the stuff and be better than his brother. Right. Yep. And the father basically says, listen, if um, your brother came home, we had to celebrate because that's what graciousness does. Mm-hmm. That's what love is. And if you want to stay out here in the darkness and be angry, then fine. I'm going to go back in there and celebrate with your brother who is dead and is now alive again. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so 
And, and so in that story, you can see that both the legalist and the libertine have to make a choice. Right. And so, and, and the good news we get in the story of the prodigal son is that the prodigal comes home. Now that doesn't happen with a lot of prodigals. A lot of prodigals die out there in the wilderness because mm-hmm. they won't turn back and, and accept the shame of their behavior and like, and, and, and plead for the grace of the father. Mm-hmm. But, but the thing that isn't solved in the, in the prodigal son narrative is does the older brother ever go in? Does he repent? Mm-hmm. Does he return home? Does he accept the embrace of the father? And does he accept that the embracing his father means embracing his sinful brother? Mm-hmm. Right. And every Christian has to do that. And so if you've been a Christian for a long time, listen, God is just as stern with the legalist as the libertine. Right. Right. Where they're both sinners. Yep. They both reject and hate his love mm-hmm. in different ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if as a church, we aren't constantly going back to the true gospel and what it and how to stay on that razor thin edge to not fall into either moralism or that therapeutic mindset of what it means to know Jesus, um, then it's just so easy to get off track really easily. So um, as far as the second part of growth goes, knowing the Bible, why is that something that we have to continue coming back to making sure that it's infiltrated in every ministry, every everything that we're doing at High Point. Yeah. So in Christian theology, generally, there's there's four, quote, words of God. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but there's what God has spoken in nature in two ways, in the creation of creation and then the creation of what Francis Schaeffer called the mannishness of man or the humanness of humanity, you might say. That like there's a desire for a turning the hearts of human beings. There is a There is a moral reality inside of us. And like Scripture says that God is speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth declares the work of his hands, right? So that there's a way that God has spoken in creation and in our hearts. But both of those words are not clear enough for salvation. Hmm. They tell us things about God. We ought to know things about God. But because they're not specific, more specific, we like take what we want from those truths. So God has given us at least two special revelations. That is his word in Christ. Jesus is the word of God and his, the word of God written. That is the, um, the, what the right, the inscripturated writings of his revelation in time and history that we have in the Bible. Right. And so, and if you say, well, then how do we know, how do we know about Christ? Well, we know about Christ in some ways through the church, that the testimony of Jesus has come down through many generations in the church. But the main way we know about Christ is the inscripturated testimony about him in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So the scriptures are both the word of God written themselves, and they're also our best and most reliable testimony about God's other special word, the word of Christ. Right. And so by reading, understanding, and knowing the content of the Bible, it is the way we access how God has spoken and shown himself in written scripture and in the man, Jesus Christ. Mm Mm-hmm who is at the center of the gospel and is at the center of God's self-revelation. Does that make sense? And so no Christian could possibly imagine that they were engaging in Christian faith well if they neglected the content of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, but when people come into High Point Church, listen, they didn't learn this stuff in school. They, they probably didn't grow up in a family where the Bible was read regularly. The Bible is a fairly large and can be an intimidating book for people. Mm-hmm. It's not nearly as difficult as you think when you first start. But like, any realm of knowledge, we tend to be intimidated when we get going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we want High Point to be a place where people can learn more and more and more about the Bible, no matter where they are, their path, but where people who come in and they don't know anything about the Bible, mm-hmm. they can still get engaged. They can start to learn and they can get going. 
Right. With scriptures. Yeah. Um, yeah. At least in small groups, that's why we encourage having sermon-based small groups so that they're like for people who are coming in who ha- don't have a knowledge of the Bible, they can refer back to whatever passage was spoken on from that, that one sermon and be able to try to chew on it and figure out what it means and be able to have other seasoned believers who maybe have known those Bible passages for years and years, um, that there is a way to really dig into the word, whether you've known Jesus your whole life, or if you, if you haven't really developed a relationship with him at all. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if you've heard an expositional sermon, a sermon that exposits a particular section of the scriptures, right? Then even if you don't know anything about the scriptures, you've read that passage and you've listened to hopefully a competent interpreter explain the meaning of that passage. Mm -hmm. So you can become acquainted with that passage, its meaning, its attending truths, and its probable applications. Mm -hmm. And so you can enter into a discussion about that, center on the scriptures, and you can learn more about them. But then also as a church, we also provide mentorship in learning and understanding the Bible, um, Christian education, where you can go and study whole books of the Bible, mm-hmm. all kinds of other supports to get acquainted with scripture. Because what I what I have found is that Christians who spend time learning the scriptures, not, not legalistically, because they think, well, if I read the Bible, know the Bible, God will love me. But to say, no, the God who loves me has spoken and shown himself in the scriptures. And so if I want to know of the love and of the interests and the character and the teachings of the God who has shown himself, it's all right here. Mm-hmm. So I should read it and know it and understand it and, and eat it. Like it's in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has to like eat this scroll and it tastes like honey. Mm-hmm. And he, and there's, that's, that's this metaphor in scripture that like, if you understand the word of God for what it is, it's sweeter than honey to the soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? If you read the right attitude and you drink it and knowing how good and beautiful it is, it, it, it's like taking in honey and it will also nourish you and, and like make you able to understand the God who, who not only cares about you, but, but that is like infinitely wise, mm-hmm. right? It's not just like, Oh, he loves you so much. And you, you, you like almost picture this like flubby lovey God. That's like the sort of person you wouldn't want to be around. No, God is this, this morally serious warrior lover God who is absolutely wise in all things appreciates all things for their inherent beauty is infinitely creative in his creation. And like, he's an infinitely interesting being Mm -hmm. and you're reading that being's word to humanity, which you are 100% involved in. And so his words should be seen. You should experience it as incredibly relevant. Yeah. So of our ministry model, we've talked about these first two elements, connection and growth. Um, And in hearing the and understanding the the beauty of the gospel and how amazing it can be to read the scriptures and see who God is and learn more about Him, why are those two elements not enough? Why do we need that third element of service in something like our ministry model? Yeah, because because in some ways, until we get to the third one, we're not actually doing what Jesus said yet, right? One of the examples you've heard me say many times is like it's almost like somebody wants to be a bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. And they go, okay, I'm going to be a bodybuilder. You have to take in a lot of calories. You got to eat a certain diet to be a bodybuilder. And they just eat all that stuff and they don't exercise. Mm-hmm. They never actually lift the weights. Right. And they, they don't get ripped. They just get fat. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so that's one part, right? So like, imagine for a minute, you're a non-Christian, right? And you come across these people and every week they get together for like three hours and they talk about God. 
Mm-hmm. They and they talk. What they talk about is they say, you know, what God wants is us for lo- to love each other. God wants us to forgive each other. God wants us to serve each other. God wants us to carry each other's burdens. God wants us to. And you go through all these things. God wants to, right? And they never do it, mm-hmm. right? They talk about all these about God, and they talk about all these things God wants them to do, mm-hmm. and then they don't ever do it. Do it themselves. Like you would think these people are ridiculous hypocrites, right? Mm-hmm. Because they. They would be, right? Like Jesus never says, you know, if you study the Bible, you will truly be my disciples. Right. right? No, he says, if you love one another. Now, you may need to spend considerable time studying the Bible to really understand in a way that isn't worldly and controlled by secularity and non-Christian assumptions and idolatries what it really means to love someone. Right. And it may take you three hours of Bible study a week in order to be 100% clear on what it means to love someone the way God loves them and not the way the world would love them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. You still haven't done anything yet. Right. Right. And so if you really want to obey the Lord, you have to, then you've got to love people. Mm-hmm. Right. And God seems to teach that we will love our neighbors and our neighbors are the people that we naturally come in contact with. And he also sends us into the world in John 17. And then in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, he sends us to the world. Mm-hmm. So he sends us into the world because we all live in secular cities and we we shouldn't just live in our own little Christian bubbles. And he sends some of us out among the nations of the whole world mm-hmm. um, to reach them. And that's a passion that God has to reach people. So sharing the gospel with others, leading people to Christ, but also bearing to those burdens and forgiving those who have wronged us in all these actions of service and love are necessary or it's all just a big sham. The, the other reason is because doing these makes your faith. Mm. The person who obeys God, their faith grows. Yeah, They grow in wisdom. They understand why God says things. There's this, this place in the gospel of John where, where Jesus says, if you want to know if my words are from God, do them. Mm-hmm. And his will and his wisdom be worked out. And so doing works of service and mission change you in a way you'll never be changed. You'll never grow. You'll never become fully Christ's disciple from the very depths of your heart if you don't obey him. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. so the way that we break up serve in our ministry model is specifically serving the city and then reaching the world. And so when you were talking about how we care for our neighbors, the people who are right next to us, that falls under that category of serving the city and remembering that we aren't, we aren't only a part of the body of Christ in the local church, but we are also a part of this, the city, the place where God has put us. Um, I think it's, is it in, um, oh dear, <laughs> where is it that the Israelites are in Babylon, um, where they are supposed to go and live their life um, fully there? Jeremiah 29 yeah. is what you're thinking of, I think. Yeah. Yes. Where we're supposed to do the same thing that we're supposed to help the place in which we're living flourish, not just try to flourish ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It says live for the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've sent you. Right. So that's as far as it it flourishes. So will you. So in some sense, it's like a, it's not worldly, but God is saying your temporal well being is tied to your political neighbors. Yeah. Like all these other people around you, like the Babylonians who are, entirely worldly who conquered you and are holding you in subjection your well-being is tied to that mm-hmm. right yeah. in addition to that so is their salvation yeah yeah right. so it's not like it's a the reason why that's said is not strictly to show how you benefit from serving and loving the people around you but it is a it is a side effect it is a benefit um, but the purpose is to to carry out that mission that yeah. that God has put for in for us um 
And then that's yeah. like, but I, I think part of the heart of that is that Americans often use their hobbies as the escape from responsibility and doing things that simply please us. Like the fundamental nature of a hobby is something that just pleases you. Mm-hmm. And the idea of living a life of love is to, to say that we take our leisure, some of the time we could spend on ourselves, and we choose to do something productive, productive that we also learn to enjoy or enjoy. Mm-hmm. So that what we do in our quote free time is actually for the good of others to learn to like sitting and reading with a kid so that they can do well in school as much as you would go out going out in the boat or mm-hmm. doing whatever it is or playing golf or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so learning like, like, um, you know, clearing paths and city parks and um, helping widows take care of their property and all these things that you like, you just love doing that. Mm-hmm. And so therefore your hobby is to do good. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? And for some people it, it's to take your selfish hobby and, invite others into its enjoyment yeah. and do good that way. Like taking, like I take people fishing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I enjoy fishing. Right. And enjoy it with me. Right. That's one way to serve right. somebody else. But because on some level you probably would enjoy fishing by yourself more than you would mm-hmm. having someone else with you, at least in certain points of the year. And- right, unless I change my attitude. Right? right. I would. Yeah. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a really cool way that we can, there's not a strict formula that we're supposed to follow of how to serve our city or reach the people around us. Like God has given us gifts and desires and passions that we can then use to go out and love the people around us in a way that mm-hmm. that does bring us life as well. So it is cool how he's yeah. set it up that way. Yeah. And, and Christian faith, as it works its way through a people, makes them increasingly functional. Like, it, like it, you deal with stuff and you grow and you handle things and you become productive and you gain the self-control to like save your money and do the right thing and not the self-destructive thing. And there's all these temporal ways in which it's beneficial. But what that leads to is wealth and good functioning. And when people get wealthy and they function well, they tend to just want to be around other people who work hard and do the right thing and make the right choices and so on. Mm-hmm. And what happens is those people become insular to themselves and they naturally want to pull themselves away from people who are not like that. Right. Um, and, but that makes you spiritually ineffective, mm-hmm. right? Because sinners, sin is by definition, self-destruction, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, even the disciplined kind is still an ultimate self-destruction because it doesn't take into account the long run of eternity. And so, you you have to resist that, right? And, and that means you're serving others because it's something you wouldn't probably naturally do. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I want to take just a minute to talk about that last point then underserved. So the, the reach in the world part. Um, High Point has tw- um, between 20 and 30 or th- oh, just over 30 missionaries that we support. 32 to 35, yeah. Yes. You tell me this every time and I always forget. Um, yes. And um, it's changed a little. There's always one or two that come <laughs> off the field every year and one or two new ones each year. Yeah. So it always does vary a little bit. Yeah. Um, we've got the Global Missions Team, which is a committee at High Point that spends a spends their focused time on how to support and care for those missionaries um, that we are supporting financially. But um, I think it's so helpful to have those missionaries at the forefront of our minds for those of us who aren't called out to the mission field or don't feel that um, that pull to go elsewhere, but to remember that God is still working outside of Madison, outside of my family's home and to, to know what he's doing in other places in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is the word missionary is not in the Bible anywhere. 
right? And so, so what we came up with in the Bible, there is evangelist and apostle, right? And of course, prophet too, right? And so an apostle is somebody who is sent. An evangelist is someone who tells the good news, right? Mm-hmm. Every Christian, in a sense, has a ministry of evangelism where they are. There are some that are sent to other places. And so when we say missionary, what we mean is something similar to the generic meaning of the word apostle. So the word apostle has a specific meaning, the 12, Jesus, 12 apostles, mm-hmm. right? But there's a generic meaning of apostle. Apostolos in Greek just means somebody who's sent. And so when the Bible says God gave apostles, he, I don't think he just means the 12, but he means those that are sent, that go around, that are itinerant, that minister between churches and in different places. Yeah. I, that's what we mean by a missionary. It's somebody we send out. And usually it means that they're going to engage in a cross-cultural thing. So usually there's a a strong cultural or a strong language barrier, or there's a reason why the local church isn't going to reach a particular people and they need a specific minister. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have college staff workers, for example. Like in some ways, there's not a huge cultural difference between like a 20-year-old who's going to college and a 20-year-old who isn't in our church, right? Right. But in a way, the university is its own little world Mm -hmm. with its own little rules and its own little assumptions and leaders and all that kind of stuff. And sending people into that little world as missionaries has proven to be helpful, I think, in certain ways. It's also unhelpful in other ways, but it's helpful in some ways. So when we say a missionary, that's an apostle, somebody we send oftentimes cross-culturally or cross-linguistically to reach people our church is not naturally reaching Mm -hmm. and that we don't haven't found a way to naturally reach in our ministries. Does that make sense? And so everybody's an evangelist. Everybody is a good newser sharing the good news and leading people to discipleship to be baptized and to obey everything Jesus commanded. Some people we send mm-hmm. and some of those people we send cross-culturally and cross-linguistically. We call those people missionaries. Right. Does that make sense? If missionary just means somebody who goes out and tells people about Jesus, then everybody's a missionary mm-hmm. in some sense. Mm-hmm. And some people do it vocationally. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. I think it's important for people to mean that because I don't, you, you are off the hook because we send missionaries out. Right. right? Yeah. But in addition to the evangelistic work, we all personally do in our own circles of influence in order for all nations Mm -hmm. to come to faith. We will have to additionally engage in generous financial giving and in some people generously giving the comforts of life in home and hearth to go. And those sacrifices will have to be made for us to reach the world. Right. I think additionally, the sacrifice of uh, like just the mind space to – to know what's going on, to, to develop a, a, like a compassion for people who are not in your normal circle that you see or that you're, that you're used to. Um, I think you, you develop a, a greater understanding of, of the larger body of Christ, the, the global mm-hmm. body of Christ, yeah. and the beauty that, that God has put into the world in, in various places, not just in the way that your church runs or the way that Christians around you function. But, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I know for me that it's been, it has been a sacrifice to read those newsletters about different missionaries Mm -hmm. over on the world and, um, understanding the, the context that they're in, um, and how it's different from mine and the obstacles that they've faced because of it. Um, but, and so, yeah, so it can be financial. It is, um, yeah, I, I think one of the things you're, you're getting at here is, like we said with the other points, that involving yourself obediently in this this part of the mission of God changes you. Yes. That as you become a globally minded person, you begin to realize that this thing called humanity that God loves is much different. There's many languages, lots of different cultures, lots of expressions, many different ways to live. And it makes you a a 
more broadly broader minded person, more open to the many experiences of the world, the many interests of God. It makes you open to the cross-cultural and multi-ethnic nature of Christ's church. And I think it begins to draw you into things like the extra work it takes to be a multi-ethnic person, to care about people from other cultures and to have a diversity of friendships and to, and for your local church to become a multi-ethnic church, a church for all people that really accepts all kinds of different people of different ethnicities, cultures, and linguistic groups, which God wants in the local church, especially in places that are naturally diverse as cities and as locations, mm-hmm. right? Which, which people talk about um, Madison, Wisconsin, not being a diverse place, which is true, but it's much more diverse than most places in the history of the world. Sure. Yeah. There are thousands of people in Madison, tens of thousands of people in Madison who aren't like of European, Northern European descent. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, we do live in a very diverse time and place where the people of the world are migrating all over the place and they really are here. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, the church has an incredible opportunity to be multi-ethnic and, multi- and international. And we should be because that is what you know, heaven's going to be like and what our goal is and so on. Now, there are all kinds of true barriers to that. And not all of those walls are walls of hostility. Right. Our fundamental job is to knock down all the walls of hostility. But in some ways, it's good for us to knock down some of the walls of preference mm-hmm. so that we can be together in real fellowship. Yep. Yeah. Especially when inequities and injustices exist between people of different ethnic groups or linguistic groups, mm-hmm. so that a cultivation of of a merciful love and humility between us and justice wherever there is injustice can grow. Mm-hmm. And in doing those goods, not only will the welfare of our city be better and therefore our lives, but also the beauty of the disciples of Jesus Christ loving each other. And the world will take notice of that more to the extent to which the disciples of Jesus are different from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. When white people in a white church love each other some, that is not as noticeable as when people of different ethnicities love each other. Mm-hmm. Right. The world goes, the world pays a lot more attention to the latter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. Right. Well, Nick, I think we have sufficiently answered why our uh, ministry models connection, growth and service and why that is important um, to, and, and why it is important to draw back to how, how Jesus did ministry, how he did originally commission us as a church and, uh, yeah. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. I want to plug the book blueprint for people taking this class. Um, the book blueprint by me is a devotional book that has five or six readings for each of these six points. So there's like a week worth of readings on connecting with God and what that means. And then a week worth of readings of connecting with others. And then in and the chapters are about three pages. So they're, sh- they're not like devotional thoughts, like two paragraphs. They're right. about three page chapters. So they're substantive, but not long. Mm-hmm. And they were written, I wrote them at the lowest possible intellectual like level I could without being stupid. Right. And so they're, they're, they're not theological treatises. They're, they're meant to be very clear descriptions of these scriptural truths. And so if you read that, you'll get, you know, like readings on connecting with God, connecting with others, understanding the gospel, knowing the Bible, reaching the world and, um, and uh, serving our city. And th- that book, I think, is really helpful. It gets you kind of on the right page for that. It's relatively inexpensive. You can buy it through the church. And I don't get a penny. All the profits go to our internship programs. But you'll hear about us being a teaching church later. Yes. So, I, but I th- Well, everybody I know who's read that book has been like, that was very clarifying and very helpful for me to understand the ministry. And it helped me understand at least – f- most people say it helps them understand at least a few of those points a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can attest to that. Thanks. All right, guys. We'll see you next episode.